very frequently make the terrible mistake of getting involved in some of these, you know, groups that have sometimes debates between mm-hmm. Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. And they always start out as like an effort at dialogue. And then they always descend into like the fever swamps of like people copying yeah. and pasting like 500 paragraphs about why the church is evil. And you can say, okay, we don't believe this. We don't believe that. And they'll say, well, no, you do believe this and you do believe that. And the the, the point is, if you're going to attack us, attack us for what we actually do believe right. and not what you claim we believe, but we don't actually believe it. Hello and welcome to another delicately worded episode of On the Journey uh, with Matt and Ken. I being Matt Swaim, he being Kenneth of the House of Hensley, and here we are <laughs> once again trying to do our best to explain some of the various things that we thought through when he was a Baptist pastor, I was an evangelical Protestant rock and roller, and uh, somehow or other we read things wow. and met people that led us to the Catholic faith. Ken, how are you, my friend? I'm doing really good, and it's good to see you again, Matt. Good to talk to you. Yeah, and if you uh, want to hear more about our journeys or find out more about what we do with the Coming Home Network, please do reach out to us at chnetwork.org. We have an online community where you can plug in and meet other people who are on the journey, and not just in the sense that they have shows titled on the journey. So check us out at chnetwork.org. Ken, today we're going to use a word that will make heads explode because this is one of those terms, merit, that triggers all kinds of things when people think about what the church teaches. And that's right. That's because, at least in my mind, uh, anytime I ever heard someone refer to this idea of merit, I thought, oh, well, Catholics just believe that certain good things are worth a certain amount of points and certain bad things are worth a certain amount of negative points. Mm-hmm. And you have to pile up and merit enough good things to outweigh the bad things. That's what Catholics obviously believe, and it's not. So, No, no, it's not. Let me put this into context. We are, we are concluding, believe it or not, we are concluding today um, the final episode, episode 18, in a series that we've been doing on the doctrine of justification, critique of the Reformation doctrine of sola fide, and a statement explanation of the Catholic position. And we decided to stop, uh, to uh, that is to conclude, by talking about the Catholic concept of merit. And you are dead on, Matt. Um, if you want to convince a Protestant that Catholicism is definitely, without question, indubitably, a damning system of works righteousness, just start talking to them about the Catholic idea of merit. Or let them and, hear us pray the Angelus, where we talk about the Virgin Mary and say, he who, or I'm sorry, that's in the Regina Chaley, he whom you did mm-hmm. merit to bear, right? Yeah. You know, yeah as the though word Mary is like, earned the right to bear Jesus, right? Yeah, and you used the right uh, verb when you talked about heads exploding. Uh, you know, evangelical heads will explode when you mentioned the word merit. Let me uh, kind of unwind that a little more deeply. What I mean is this, and this is my experience as a Catholic now, I mean, you can explain, you can explain carefully that Catholicism does not teach justification by the works of the law. You can read passages from the Old Testament that specifically state that when the new covenant is instituted, it is God 
who is going to circumcise the hearts of his people. It's God who is going to give them the ability to love him. God is going to give them the ability to keep his commandments. You can read from Ezekiel chapter 11. This is the passage we haven't read yet, so I decided to include it. I will give them one heart, the Lord says, and put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. You can read where the decree concerning justification from the Council of Trent makes it absolutely clear that the good works that we do as Christians are themselves works of God's grace within us, that God's grace always, in fact, I'm quoting now, always precedes, accompanies, and follows our good works, and that apart from grace, quoting again, they could not in any manner, that is our good works, could not in any manner be pleasing or meritorious to God. You can explain carefully the unambiguous teaching of the church that when God allows us in grace to merit more grace, he is only rewarding his own grace within us. I mean, you can come at this from 15 different angles. You can read where the official catechism of the Catholic Church explicitly states, quoting the prayer of St. Augustine, Quote, you are glorified in the assembly of your holy ones, for in crowning their merits, you are crowning your own gifts. I mean, you can come at this from 17 different angles. This is episode 18, so that, that kind of fits. 17 different angles. None of it will matter, Matt. None of it. What you will be told is that when talking about the issue of salvation, merit of any kind and to any degree nullifies the grace of God and turns the gospel into a damning system of works righteousness. It's kind of like, uh, well, Pee Wee's Playhouse is the example from my childhood, but where they have the secret word, right? Yeah. And if, oh. as soon as somebody says the secret word, the whole whole room goes insane, and the horns and buzzers and everything go off, and the word merit is like that. Like, it doesn't matter what else you say. Merit is just like, triggers see, into, well, obviously, you're in, you're, 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 you've, you've see, gone man, into the damning system. See, see, man, this is the difference between you and me. When I talk, when I think about a magical word or an important word, I think about shibboleth from the Old Testament. When oh, you yeah. think about it, you're in Pee Wee's Playhouse. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, I'm I mean, I'm not very often in Pee Wee's Playhouse. I'm more often in the in the shibboleth. Where if I pronounce mentally, something wrong, what they cut out my ear or something, I can't remember what they did. But during my 20 years as a Protestant, and I, I've stated many many times, but people listening probably need to know. 20 years as a Protestant, 11 of them as an evangelical Protestant pastor, to the degree, Matt, that I thought that I understood Catholic teaching, I, I considered it to be totally unbiblical. But when I began to look, I mean, in a serious manner, when I began to look into the actual teaching of the church, what I found on issue after issue is that what I thought was completely unbiblical turned out to be um, very much biblical. In fact, often profoundly beautiful and spiritually enriching and empowering. And this doctrine of merit was one of those that we're going to look at today. This is something that the Reformers pretty much, you know, rejected entirely. In his early years, at least, Luther taught that because of sin remaining in the believer, everything he does is sinful. Everything. Calvin taught that all our good works even those performed by the regenerate, by those who have been born of the Spirit of God, are, I'm quoting, impurity and dirt. And I remember 
having this conversation with others, because I was a Calvinist, but with others who were Calvinists at the time and believed in total depravity. And I remember saying, so do you think that if a mother sees her three-year-old child run out into the street and, and looks and sees a car coming and realizes the car is going to hit the child and runs out and pushes her child out from in front of the car and has hit herself, are you saying that even that w w was not a good work? And let's just put it this way. We would, we would actually stand there and debate it. Because according to total depravity, some would say, no, nah, her motives were not pure, um, or it, it was evil in this way or that, and you know, or like Calvin says, it was pure impurity or dirt. Oh, yeah. I've been in those conversations, and they're maddening, because then you start to question everything. Um, it's the kind of thing that causes the hermeneutics of suspicion to fall yeah. over every act of goodwill by anybody in your life. Yeah, and it's a dangerous, dangerous path to go on, because even the person who's being <laughs> nice to you is being nice to you because... Um, you know, because they have some ulterior motive. It's a terror. It's that way lies madness, Ken. That's yeah, all I'm saying. Yes. And I think it's a, an exaggeration of the concept of depravity. But, but anyway, this is what Luther had to say. And this is what Calvin had to say about that. And on the other hand, what the church says, the church's teaching has always been that a Christian can not only do good, can not only perform works that are, that you could qualify as good, but that by their good works, here it is, Performed in a state of grace, Christians merit supernatural reward. The Second Council of Orange, which was held in 529, put it like this, the reward given for good works, so it assumes that there is reward, the reward given for good works is not won by reason of actions that precede grace, so it's not something that you earned by, by something you did, but grace, which is unmerited, precedes actions in order that they may be accomplished meritoriously. Okay? The Council of Trent put it like this, to those who work well unto the end and trust in God, eternal life is to be offered both as a grace mercifully promised to the sons of God through Christ Jesus, and also as a reward promised by God himself to be faithfully given to their good works and merits. And then, and this is critical in understanding it, Far be it that a Christian should either trust or glory in himself and not in the Lord, whose bounty toward all men is so great that he wishes the things that are his gifts to be their merits. And we're going to be coming back to this in a number of different angles, but I want to just put it out there. This is what the texts actually say. And this doesn't sound in the least like a damning system of works righteousness. In fact, I think that when you read these words carefully, Again, from the Council of Orange, from the Council of Trent, it's patently clear that the Catholic teaching is not a damning system of works. You may think that it's not biblical. Someone may you know, add up all the details from Scripture and think this is not what the Bible teaches. But I have to say that when Protestants insist that Catholicism teaches works righteousness when focusing on this concept of merit, this horrible damning thing of, of us meriting, what they're doing, I believe, is giving evidence that they don't really even understand what the teaching is. At least they're not understanding the subtleties of the teaching. Well, it's like they hear half of a sentence and they don't have it, hear it in the context, much like proof texting in general. You know, I very frequently make the terrible mistake of getting involved in some of these, you know, groups that have sometimes debates between mm -hmm. Catholics and Protestants. Mm -hmm. And they always start out as like an effort at dialogue and then they always descend into like the fever swamps of like, people copying yeah. and pasting like 500 paragraphs about why the church is evil. And you can say, okay, we don't believe this. We don't believe that. 
and they'll say, well, no, you do believe this and you do believe that. And the, the, the point is, if you're going to attack us, attack us for what we actually do believe right. and not what you claim we believe, but we don't actually believe. And this is, again, this comes back to what you were saying as a, as a Baptist pastor, what I was believing as a Wesleyan Bible college kid is that I assumed that the Catholic Church taught officially a lot of things, and then you got digging into them and you realize, well, that's not what they teach at all. What they teach at all may be wrong, but it's certainly not as scary as I thought it was. Well, I guess you could put it this way. Um, you have to love something in order to think about it hard enough to see all of its subtleties and variations of color and whatnot. And so if you basically hate something or you, you approach something with animosity already, um, you can just get like, you know, the basic sketch outline and know that it's bad and know that it's evil. Well, one of the things that was critical in my own conversion was what you were saying. It, it was simply coming to realize on issue after issue that what the church actually taught was a lot more subtle and had a lot more nuance to it than what I had thought and and what uh, you know other Protestants said about it. Okay, so let's start to dig into it. Well, what is the scriptural basis for this idea or for this teaching? And I would say that the basis of it is is in the concept of reward. And so I want to begin by looking at the notion of reward in the Bible, um, because when I began to actually look at what the Bible has to say about God rewarding the good works of his people. Frankly, I was pretty stunned at how uh, ubiquitous it was, how pervasive the concept of reward is in the Bible. And let me just read some verses from the New Testament now, just so we can hear them. They don't require any comment, really. I just want you to hear how pervasive this idea is that God wants to reward the good works of his people. Matthew 5.12 Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Matthew 6, 3 and 6. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, secret will reward you. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 19, 28 through 30, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Mark 9, 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water, I mean, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose his reward. Romans 2, 6 through 8 and 13, for he will render to every man according to his works, to those who by patience and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but wickedness, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury, and it goes on. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the reap of from the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever your task, work heartily as serving the Lord and not men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of heaven, the inheritance as your reward. 
Hear that again. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Ephesians 6, verse 8, whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same again from the Lord. And then Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Well, Ken, you know, when you started in the first half of that salvo of what was that, like 12 passages or something like that, mm-hmm. that, that talk about, you know, you do the good thing and the reward will follow, you know, the first several of those were from the Gospels. And I've gotten in debates with people who say, well, that was the Gospels. Paul comes along and develops from Jesus a new dispensation mm-hmm. that puts us out from under those kind of even works rewards things that Jesus was talking about, except the bulk of what you just read is from Paul. Yeah, from Paul and then from right? the author of Hebrews, yes. And from the author of Hebrews. Yeah, I mean, rewards are everywhere. You know, in short, if you read these passages, I think it would be impossible to say that Jesus and the apostles have a problem talking about God rewarding those who walk in the steps of faith. And, and yet, when you think about it, Matt, this is simply another way of saying, I'll just put it like this, it's another way of saying that Jesus and the apostles have no problem thinking that the good works of God's people might merit, in some sense, and we're going to come to that, might merit reward from God. Let me give an, an analogy, illustration. When one of my grandchildren does something good, a good deed, and I find myself wanting to report, wanting to reward that good deed, it's not that I'm required to reward the good deed, as, as though it were a matter of law as though there were this universal moral law standing behind me and they've done a good deed, I have to reward it, okay? Rather, it's because I want to. In other words, it's because I've decided that their good deed will merit a reward. And so I reward them for it. I've decided that there's something about the good deed they performed that merits a reward. So wait, you're saying that you think of this exchange of grace and favor as... Uh, in the context of a family? Yes. Rather than in the context of a court of law? Yes, yes. I mean, that's essentially what you're saying. It's yeah. kind of the running theme of all these episodes on yeah, justification. And the grace run- this familial analogy. And the analogy, grace runs yeah. all the way through it. So that when Jesus and the apostles speak of rewards, they aren't saying that God is required, you know, by the laws of the state of California, <laughs> you know, to re- to reward those. Which are and, many. Which are many. And varied. And, and, and myriad and multitude. Anyway, They're not saying that God is required by some law that stands outside of God to reward the good deeds of his people. Like there's some cosmic law of of cause and effect that exists above God and behind God and to which he's bound. What they're saying is that God is a father, there's the family again, who has chosen, graciously chosen to reward his children for their good works. And this is the teaching of the Catholic Church. This is how the Catholic Church looks at it. Okay, with what does God reward his people? We can speak about this for one moment. Because are we talking here about the health and wealth, you know, prosperity gospel now? Is that what Catholicism teaches? You know, the idea God does, you know, Matt, that God does not want you driving a Pinto. God wants you, you know, in a Cadillac. God wants you in a Lamborghini. Well, if you say it enough times, it'll be true, right? Depending on some of these theological ways that the health and wealth yeah. you know, come out, right? You you earned it by saying it. Yeah, enough, you speak it right? into existence, okay? It's the Cadillac, it's the Audi, it's the Lamborghini, it's whatever, it's the Maserati. You sound like you're speaking in tongues right yeah. now. 
That's not what the church is teaching. Okay, the answer is clear. What the church teaches is that good works performed by a Christian in the state of grace merit supernatural rewards. Supernatural rewards. Rewards such as an increase in grace, more grace from God, an increase in heavenly glory. And I think about where Paul says that our our present sufferings are working for us an eternal weight of glory. This is what the church teaches, supernatural rewards, an increase in grace, an increase in heavenly glory, an increase in supernatural happiness, joy, an increase in assurance of eternal life. It's supernatural rewards. Or as we read earlier in the Council of Trent, I'll let Trent speak, to those who work well unto the end and trust in God, eternal life is to be offered, both as a grace mercifully promised to the sons of God through Christ Jesus, and as a reward promised by God himself to be faithfully given to their good works and merits. Now, in, in terms of my own story, Matt, that, that is how I came to accept the church's teaching on this. The first step then, the first step was simply acknowledging what the Bible says about God rewarding those who do good, rewarding his children, rewarding his people. Step two was coming to understand that the Catholic teaching on merit does not, I mean, uh, you know, absolutely does not envision some mechanical system by which we have become employees of God, and God has become our cosmic employer, required by the laws of the state and the country and all that is good and right, required to reward us with a paycheck of eternal life. Nothing like that. What the Catholic teaching envisions, rather, is a loving father who has decided that the good works of his children performed in grace will merit his reward. Okay, what about the issue of motivation? That is interesting question. Is it right for us to think about rewards? Is it right for us to seek rewards from God? Because it, it, it feels somehow selfish. It feels selfish. Yeah, I'm so altruistic, I don't even want heaven. I don't know that that works very well. <laughs> yeah. You know. I, I mean, and aren't we, the, this is a fact, aren't we reminded all the time and from a number of angles, aren't we reminded that we should do good not in order to get something, but simply because it, it's the right thing, as though to think about the benefit that would come is selfish. This is what we hear. It's like you were saying with, you know, uh, saving the child from, you know, being hit by a bus, you know, are you doing it because you care truly for the child or is it because you don't want to fill out paperwork? You know, it, it, this is, uh, these are the mm -hmm. kinds of questions behind the questions that, you know, you can, you can drive yourself nuts asking about, you know, am I working for the Lord well, and the not issue, men, yeah, as St. Paul was saying in Colossians yeah, And this 3. issue of motivation is a real issue though, because I, I hear that all the time. I hear that from well-meaning priests, you know, from, from Catholics that you should do the good simply because it is the right thing to do. And the issue of motivation, especially what you're going to get out of it, shouldn't enter in, into the equation at all. Well, I want to set it up that dramatically because I really think that that's wrong. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a sermon um, titled The Weight of Glory. This is a sermon that I read way back when I was in seminary. And although I didn't think about it at the time, didn't realize it, what Lewis wrote at that time uh, lends support to this Catholic teaching about reward and about merit. So I want to read it. It's a tiny bit long, but it's so good, like most of C.S. Lewis. This is what he says. If you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of virtues, 19 of them would reply, unselfishness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied, love. You see what has happened? 
a negative term, unselfishness, has been substituted for a positive, love. The negative ideal of unselfishness carries with it the, the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think that this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant, Immanuel Kant, and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. And here's the killer. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <laughs> I, I have read and underlined that passage from The Weight of Glory, but I'd not thought about it in this particular context. As a matter of fact, there's this band we used to play with all the time called Anathalo, who had a little EP that they called A Holiday oh. at the Sea, and it was uh, based out of this out of this passage. And it strikes me, Ken, and I know you you've got your own thing that you want to mention here, but, but what it strikes me is that when I was reading it, what it, what Lewis awakened in me while reading this was something that had been, I guess, constricted in my view of justification, sanctification, and all of it, because I had been sort of saturated in this sort of essentialist view of Christianity that had at its heart one burning question, and it was this, what must I do to be saved? Mm -hmm. Everything mm -hmm. else is a distraction, right? Except that is an example of what Lewis is saying um, in some ways that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. If all I care about is what must I do to be saved and I'm not interested in the buffet of grace around me, then I'm missing out on a holiday at the sea yes, in a lot yes. of ways, right? Because, yeah. And that's kind of what, what I found when I started to approach the Catholic understanding of these things. I realized that it's not just a what must you do to be saved. It's like, Check out how much of a party the salvation yeah, and, really is. Yeah, and um, and in terms of what what we're talking about here, that that question of motivation, uh, what C.S. Lewis is saying, I, I think, is so powerful because he's basically saying that if you have this idea lurking in your mind, Christian brother, Christian sister, that to desire your own good and to hope for it and earnestly seek it is a bad thing because that's selfishness. It's a distraction yeah. from the question. What yes, much yeah, yeah. It's a distraction, saved, right? and it's and it's basically selfishness. He says this has crept in from from philosophy, from from Kant, and from the Stoics, and it's not Christianity. And then he then he then he makes that staggering thing where he says, if you actually look at the promises of reward and the staggering nature of these promises that are spread throughout the Gospels, you realize Jesus isn't thinking, you know, um, that we're thinking too much of ourselves. We're not thinking enough of ourselves. 
We're fooling around making mud pies in an alley because we don't realize what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so the truth is, not only does the Word of God teach us that God will reward our sacrifices and good deeds, remember again where he says, I tell you, no one has left house or brothers or sisters, wives, lands, or anything like that, who will not receive a hundredfold in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Remember that. Okay, not only does God's Word teach us that God will reward our good deeds, it, it positively encourages us to seek those rewards by example and also by precept. And you're thinking, where do we have examples of that in the Bible, of people seeking their own joy or seeking reward from God? Well, it, it's actually all over the Bible. We have Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, that great passage we've referred to a number of times, we read about Moses. This, this is interesting thing. We read that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And you ask yourself why? Okay, he's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why in the world? I mean, he's wealthy beyond belief. Why would he give that up to share ill treatment with the people of God? And you might say, oh, because it's the right thing to do. You know, he just needs to screw up his courage and do what is right. No, this is what the text says, verse 26. He considered abuse, suffered for the Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. In other words, Moses would say, you know, you'd say, Moses, why, why are you giving up the wealth of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter to do this? He would say, hold on, I'm making a calculation. There is greater wealth that direction. I'm Moses and I'm yeah, taking the I'm better, taking the better offer, offer, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I mean, I know this is before your time, but I think about that TV show, uh, The Beverly Hillbillies, okay? Oh, that's oh, not that oh, far before right. my time. Well, you know. I watched it in reruns know, all the time. Is it Jed Bush? Um, Jed? No, no, <laughs> Jed no, Bush? it's not Jed Bush. Clampett, it's Jed Clampett. It. Okay. <laughs> One is the governor of Florida. Right. One, uh, you know, was shooting at some food and up from the ground yeah, okay. came a bubble and So he, he's Jed shooting- Clampett. You know, he's, he's, he's shooting his bullets out there and one goes into the ground and oil comes up. Okay. You know? Yeah. Black gold. Yeah. And so, Texas tea. and so if he runs out and if, if he were to run out and buy that piece of land, oh, like I'm reminded of something Jesus said about finding a treasure. This is the pearl, yeah, and a, buying a pearl it. of great price, right? This is a treasure buried in a field, except it's. Jim yeah. Clampton so if, if he goes out and spends money to buy that land, no one thinks he's making a sacrifice. Oh, I can't believe you're sacrificing money to buy that land. You say, "Are you kidding? There's oil in that land." You know, so I can go out and take that money and buy a cement see, pond. <laughs> that's right. Where Jethro? Yeah, Jethro can. I don't remember all their names now, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Ellie that was a good show. I, I, I thought you said you, you were the one who remembered this show. Well, Ken. but you but now I, I can't remember all the names. I mean, I remember there, there was a banker. Well, and in there's, oh, there's, there's all that. Uh, but in that Miss Hathaway, that's right. Uh, there's a passage you're about to quote from that is about as clear cut of an explanation of work and reward as there is in all of scripture. And it's from St. Paul in first Corinthians. And it just lays it right out there about as clearly as you okay, can why don't you read that one, then? You've got it right there. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just yeah. going to go ahead and read it because it's so good. It's it, when, when Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter, this is chapter nine, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Uh, but we, 
to an imperishable. So we're doing it to receive an imperishable reef. So they're doing it to get yeah. something. The runners. And you're doing it to get something even better than what the runners are getting. I mean, Paul just spells it out as clearly as you okay, can Okay, so we've got Moses who gave up tremendous wealth to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. And he didn't do it because he was he was a sacrificial character and he didn't care about receiving anything for himself. He was just doing the right thing. He did it because he made, as you said, he, he made a calculation. He saw greater riches ahead. And Paul's the same way. He's beating himself. He's working out, spiritually speaking. You know, he's running this race. And it's because he sees the wreath ahead, the imperishable wreath ahead. And he wants to win the prize. But we have one more example. And this is the example of our Lord himself, who the author of Hebrews tells us, this is from Hebrews chapter 12. This, this is an interesting passage. The author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Even Jesus, in order to sustain himself through the suffering and the trial and the torment of the cross, had his eye on what lies ahead. That is for the joy. And in this case, it wasn't just his personal joy. It was the joy of bringing salvation to the world and all of us being with him. But he had, he had his eye on the reward for the joy set before him. And here's the thing that I want you to notice. Notice that we're commanded to imitate him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Okay, run looking ahead at our model, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, you know, the author of Hebrews is saying life may be tough, life will be tough. The, the crosses that you and I have given, been given to bear and have created for ourselves to, to bear may be really heavy, but we should keep our eyes on the prize. We should run the race for the joy that is set before us. Okay, one final New Testament passage that came to mind. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about the tendency that all of us seem to have to focus our thoughts on what we can get in this life. Material riches, possessions, homes, whatever, relationships. And what does Jesus say about this? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves. <laughs> there it is again. Lay up for yourselves, not selfishness, I guess, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your, will your heart be also. In the end, as with so many other aspects of Catholic teaching, as I was learning and as I was coming to see these things, I had to admit that the church's teaching on this issue wasn't strange, um, that it wasn't biblical. I mean, it wasn't unbiblical. Certainly, it wasn't a damning system of works. Because, you know, Matt, there's nothing unbiblical. There's nothing unbiblical about the idea that God rewards his people for the good that they do, and that God's people should set their hearts on those rewards and should seek those rewards. Jesus commands us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And this idea which really gets to the merit question. This idea of God wanting to give us, by his grace, the very ability to trust him, the very ability to do good deeds, and then to treat those gifts as our merits and reward them 
with eternal life, isn't this exactly what loving fathers, loving mothers, grandparents do every single day? And I'm thinking about Christmas, okay? Here we are in the Christmas season where fathers and mothers and grandparents everywhere have been giving their little children money so that they could go out and buy gifts for mom and for dad, for grandma, for grandpa, for their brothers and sisters. And then once they've done that, when they open the gifts, that is when mom and dad, grandparents, brothers and sisters open those gifts on Christmas morning, they're going to pick up these little ones, they're going to hug them, they're going to praise them, and they're going to thank them for their generosity and reward them yeah, for their you'd be generosity. Cool if you thought that there was only one exchange happening that, and that was the exchange of the child giving the gift to the parent, because behind it is the is the child having give, been given birth by the parents, then the child been giving the, the money to get the gift for the parents, then the gift being given to the parents and the parents giving gratitude back to the child is just like what we see in the mass where we bring the gifts forward. The gifts are consecrated and then given back mm -hmm. to us. This is how the world works. Why wouldn't it be the way that grace works? No, it, and you adding their very life just really fills this out in, an, in a beautiful way. Yeah, the parents have given the child life, have given the child everything to raise the child up and then give the child money. And then when the child buys the gift for the parent, the parents pick up the child and hug them and praise them and, and reward them for their, for their generosity. This is what fathers are like. This is what mothers are like. And again, this is the Catholic teaching that, which views God as a father. And this issue of merit and reward is embedded within this family um, feel and this feeling of fatherhood from God. It's not a mechanical it's not a courtroom situation. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not dealing with laws and requirements, universal, you know, you know, like you know, mathematical constants of the universe that force God to record to reward. It's God's gracious desire as a father. And finally, then to sort of put the final touch on this, the final touch of glory, I think, this teaching has nothing to do with us being glorified are being able to glory in ourselves and praise ourselves for our accomplishments. I read once again from the Council of Trent, this is how the Council of Trent put it, far be it that a Christian should trust or glory in himself and not in the Lord, whose bounty toward all men is so great that he wishes the things that are his gifts to be their merits. He wishes the things which are his gifts to be their merits. And as St. Augustine put it again, finally, in his prayer, you are glorified not me. You are glorified, Lord, in the assembly of your holy ones, for in crowning their merits, you are crowning your own gifts. Yeah, it's it's that's it's, the a, it's a glorious doctrine when you see it, and the the back and forth of of all of it is just really rich, uh, and you start to see that it's just so much bigger and more beautiful than checking a box on a balance sheet. That you know, at the end of the day, they do the math, and you've done enough good things yeah. to get into heaven. That is not that is not what the church teaches. No. So great stuff. I'm glad that merit was how, was where we went today because there's just a ton to unpack and it's it's one of the more beautiful teachings if you understand it uh correctly. But now now it's time yeah. to say goodbye to Ken and all his friends. Because you know what too? It's one of the most damnable teachings from the perspective of Reformation Protestantism and it's one of the most glorious and beautiful, I think, when you understand it within its true biblical context and the and within the context of the family. And so, yeah, and so what, what yeah, Ken so and all his friends... Yeah, to say goodbye to Ken and all his friends. Including Mr. Mr. Drysdale, Drysdale and Miss Hathaway. Hathaway. All of them. That all was of his them. name. Granny's Ma, 
all of them. But we hope you've enjoyed this episode of On the Journey, and we hope you've enjoyed this extended series on justification, sola fide, the Catholic understanding of salvation and, and all of it. And please do weigh in in the comments. We're going to continue and do more episodes on more things, but this is kind of the justification section of On the Journey. In the meantime, thank you for being with us. Head on chnetwork.org. Join the online community if you haven't already. We'd love to see you in there. Ken and I are always clicking around and doing our thing. And uh, yeah, come back. We'll do another series. In fact, we'll start another series we will. right away. And, and for that, you can come back for a keeping helping of our lay theology. Y'all come back now here. <laughs> see, one see one final week. reference. Yeah. Good. That, that was good. That was good. Okay. Bye, Matt. <laughs>